Well, if you're, if you're new with us and you haven't been with Parkway um, for a number of years, then, then what I'm going to do now is, is outside the norm. Uh, I don't know, four or five years ago, we decided it would be healthy for the church to once a year take uh, a Sunday and reflect on the life of, of, of a, a follower of Jesus who made a positive impact on, on history. Uh, last year, we looked at uh, John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, who was the slave trader turned pastor and uh, very key and influential in, in abolishing slavery in, in Great Britain. And um, this morning, we kind of switch to the other foot, and I would like to draw our attention to a, to a, a slave, an American slave um, from the 19th century. Again, I think this is important, even though it's only once a year, to get us connected as the body of Christ to our history um, to hear voices from the past who have lived well, who have run the race and they have finished the race, and to hear their perspectives, to see that Christian, the Christian life has been lived out faithfully in difficult times, and to allow their examples and their thoughts to motivate and inspire us. I think the Bible itself gives us grounds to do so when it holds up for us a whole list of heroes in Hebrews um, and says, by faith they lived, by faith they lived, by faith they lived, almost as examples for us to follow so that we might recognize that we have a great cloud of witnesses, brothers and sisters who have passed before us um, that should inspire us to live the same kind of, of um, passionate and uncompromising Christian life. So with that said, again, this is an abnormal Sunday, but I hope that you'll see the benefit of, by, of it by the time we, we get to the end. As I mentioned, um, this particular person that we're going to look at comes from the 19th century, um, born in the state of Virginia, he was uh, um, a born slave, not someone who was transplanted from from Africa. Um, when I first heard his story, it was actually from my wife. She was laying in bed and she read me just an excerpt of his autobiography. And just the brief sentences that I heard, I thought to myself, I have to explore this guy's story. And uh, it is a remarkable story. Um, at the same time, it's a remarkable story of a man's uh, tenacious faith. Also, what's interesting is that he's not a theologian, not a pastor, not a scholar. Uh, he is very ordinary, which makes him so accessible to all of us. He was an ordinary man who followed, followed Christ. And yet, again, his story is, is remarkable. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell his story, at least little parts of it. There's no way you can cram a man's life into 30 minutes but I'm just going to give you little snippets, and if you are able to pay attention, um, then I think by the time you get to the end, you're just going to be blown away as well. Uh, because he wrote his own autobiography um, from his own perspective, uh, I am going to quote somewhat extensively from his own work, because my paraphrasing of what he said doesn't do justice to what he actually said. So I will be quoting um, th throughout. Some of the quotes are, are difficult to listen to, but... Um, but it gives you the raw perspective of a slave, which is, uh, which is what we need. The name of this particular person is Henry Brown. Some of you may have heard of him, um, perhaps in uh, grade school. Um, but this particular perspective comes out of his autobiography, and you probably wouldn't hear it in the public school because it's the Christian perspective, um, which he was a Christian. Uh, Henry Brown was born uh, in 1815, born to slave parents, and later in life he would reflect upon what that meant to be born a slave, and he said this. He said, thus, was, thus I was born a slave. Tyrants, remorseless, destitute of religion and every principle of humanity, stood by the couch of my mother 
And as I entered into the world, before I had done anything to forfeit my right to liberty, they stretched forth their bloody arms and branded me with the mark of bondage. And by such means, I became their own property. Yes, they robbed me of myself before I could know the nature of their wicked arts. In other words, he just reflected on the fact that the moment he was born, he was the property of someone else, not the mother, not the father, but a slave owner. He credits his mother as he grew up with instilling within him a a sense of right and wrong. He also credits his mother for instilling within him a sense of faith, faith in God and faith in Christ. Now, from what I've read, it seems that she didn't have a real deep understanding of the faith, but you can't really blame her. She was a slave and didn't have adequate um, appropriation or availability of, of education. But what she did know, she instilled into her son, which is an encouragement for and should be an encouragement to all of us because many of us feel ill-equipped perhaps to be parents. And yet she did what she she did the best with what she had and it would pay off later on. One of his first memories that he has of his mother, or should I say one of the most powerful and poignant memories he has uh, of his mother, was her taking him into her arms and embracing him and just hugging him. And she pointed out um, trees. It was autumn, fall at the time, and she was pointing out the wind that was ripping the leaves off of the trees. And she said, Henry, someday, and she's warning him of the future, she said, someday slave owners are going to rip you out of my hands like the wind is ripping the leaves off of the trees. He remembers that, and he writes about that particular moment um, in his, in his auto, autobiography. Well, her, her words and her warning, that kind of picture of wind ripping leaves off of the tree in autumn, um, would later come true. His slave owner um, died. In, in God's providence, he was a kind slave owner, but he died leaving all of his assets, his plantation, including his slaves, to his four sons, and they divided his assets And in his own words, this is how it took place. And I quote, he says, On the death of my old master, his property was inherited by four sons. So the human, as well as every other kind of property, came to be divided equally amongst these four brothers, which division, as it separated me from my father and mother and sister and brother, whom I had hitherto been allowed to live, was the most severe trial to my feelings which I had ever endured. Keeping in mind, he was 15 years old when that took place. I was then only 15 years of age, but it is as present in my mind as if but yesterday's sun had shone upon the dreadful exhibition. 15 years of age, ripped from his family. He had, there were six siblings in all, and his parents, and they were, they were scattered. He talks about the emotional impact of how that felt. Continuing on, he says, This kind of torture is a thousandfold more cruel and barbarous than the use of the lash which lacerates the back. Some of you know that, that emotional pain is far more difficult to deal with than even physical pain. And that's what he's speaking about. He continues on and he says, The gashes which the whip makes may heal, but the pains which lacerate the soul in consequence of the forcible disruption of parent and the dearest family ties only grow deeper and more piercing as memory fetches them from greater distance the horrid acts that were done. In other words, as time went on, it was more and more difficult emotionally to realize what had happened, that he had been completely stripped from his parents. Well, that was his experience at 15 years of age. So he was separated from his parents, and he was sent into Richmond to work in a tobacco factory. And it's there that he was exposed to more hostile forms of slavery. As mentioned, in God's providence, his particular slave owners were were somewhat 
um, kind, giving them shoes and, and decent clothes. But when he got to Richmond, he saw a total different side, totally different side of, of, of slavery. On one occasion, he and his brother, one of the brothers that got taken with him, um, were doing a, um, an errand for his master, and they went to a local mill, and there they ran into a group of, of slaves dressed in gunny sacks with no shoes on. And they interacted with this group of slaves, and here is the interaction. Henry writes, My brother put various questions to them, such as if they had wives. Did they go to church? They said they had wives, but were obliged to marry persons who worked on the same plantation, as their master would not allow them to take wives from other plantations. Consequently, they were all related to each other. And the master obliged them to marry their relatives or remain single. My brother asked one of them to show him his sisters. He said, he could not distinguish them from the rest as they were all his sisters. So the slave owner determined who they could marry, couldn't marry outside the plantation, which in the end was a coercive form of, of incest. And so everybody was related to one another. Even the marriages that were normal, he goes on to say, were difficult and in the context of always hostile situations and very fearful. He writes this. He says, The relations of husband and wife, parent and child, only exist by the toleration of their master, who may insult the slave's wife or violate her person at any moment, and there is no law to punish him for what he has done. It is my candid opinion that one of the strongest motives which operate upon the slaveholders in inducing them to maintain their iron grasp upon the unfortunate slaves is because it gives them such unlimited control, especially over our women. I mean, you put yourself in that, that, that scenario or context, brother, husband, when fear of at any moment someone could violate, rape your wife, and there's nothing that the law would do about it. There's nothing you could do about it. If you did resist or fight, you would either be tortured, perhaps put to death, or sold. In which case, you leave your sons without a father and your wife without a husband. No recourse. I just can't imagine living under such conditions. I, I picture my wife and my kids, and um, I don't know how s- slaves in these conditions endured and didn't just choose suicide as a way out or attempt escape, and of course many of them tried. How would you endure? Well, he gives us a peek into how the slaves, uh, what motivated many of the slaves to continue on, and, and it was the simple hope of freedom. He writes, if there's anything which tends to buoy up the spirit of the slave under the pressures of severe toils, more than any other, it is the hope of future freedom. By this his heart is cheered and his soul is lighted up in the midst of the fearful scenes of agony and suffering which he has to endure. And some slave owners would hold out the promise of, of, of freedom, that if the slave worked hard enough and could save enough, then he could purchase or she could purchase their own freedom and experience freedom from this kind of oppression and tyranny and and being someone else's property. But even this promise of freedom was oftentimes used as a gimmick or a ruse or a trick to get slaves to work hard without ever intending on fulfilling the promise of freedom. He writes, Indeed, a great many masters hold out to their slaves the object of purchasing their own freedom in order to induce them to work harder without at any time entertaining the slightest idea of ever fulfilling the promise. Imagine yourself for a moment working as hard as you can with the promise of freedom before you and saving and saving and saving only to find out that, that, that it was a lie. 
the, the one thing worse than not having hope at all is to have a hope that's a mirage. It's, it's a myth. It turns out to be nothing. There was a bright spot in his life, in his uh, late teens, and that is he met a girl. Fell in love with a girl by the name of Nancy who was also a slave. Women are oftentimes, and men I suppose, if you happen to be a woman, are often a bright spot in life when you fall in love with someone, even in the context of slavery. So he finds this woman that he loves who's a slave, but she's owned by another slave master. Which means if he wants to marry her, he has to gain the permission of the other slave owner and his own. At this point, he goes to the other slave master and asks permission, may I marry Nancy, your slave? In addition to asking permission, he also asks if he would consider promising not to sell her. In other words, he wanted to know the intentions of the slave owner. Would he sell her? Because if you marry someone and then she's sold to someone in, let's say, North Carolina, then your marriage doesn't exist anymore. So this slave owner who owned Nancy, the woman he fell in love with, gave permission and also promised he would not sell her. Now this man was a professing Christian, as was his slave owner. So he married her and they had three children together. So there's this, there's this little window of, of light in his life. It's like a little eye in the middle of the storm in which he got to experience the joys of, 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 of marriage and the joys of being a father. But this little eye of the storm, this little, little hiatus, this little respite of joy in his life came to an end. After 12 years of marriage with three kids, he went to work one day where he received, after a couple hours of working in the fields, he received... I'll read it. He received an, um, a report. He says, I was informed of my wife... Excuse me, I'm going to reread that. I was informed that my wife and children were taken from their home, sent to the auction mart, and sold. The man, the Christian man who promised that he would not sell her, went back on his promise, reneged. I was informed that my wife and children were taken from the home, sent to the auction mart and sold, and then lay in prison ready to start away the next day to North Carolina. Granted, he's in Virginia. She is being sold to someone in North Carolina. With the man who had purchased them, and he goes on to say, I cannot express in language what were my feelings on this occasion. Imagine, brother, that you go off to work and you're sitting in your cubicle and all of a sudden you receive a phone call. Your wife and children have been taken and you'll never see them again. Language cannot grasp what he felt at that moment. At this point, he had about a 24-hour period because they were leaving the next day for North Carolina. His wife and his children, mind you. And so he begged his own Christian master who had the means to purchase her. He begged her. Several times he went, would you consider purchasing my wife so I can stay with my wife and children? And each time he was turned away. So he went to other Christian men of means that he knew and he had a certain amount of friendship with and he begged them, would you consider purchasing my wife and my children so that I can stay with my family? And each one of them turned a deaf ear to him, leaving him with no recourse to keep his wife and family. And so those 24 hours... Um, Close, and we find him the next day with no option but to stand on the side of the street and watch his family parade in front of him on their way to North Carolina. And he describes what he sees. He says, 
I had the melancholy satisfaction of witnessing the approach of a gang of slaves, amounting to 350 in number, marching under the direction of a Methodist minister, by whom they were purchased, and amongst which slaves were my wife and children. He's watching a parade of 350 slaves, of which his wife and children were a part, and at the head, the one who purchased them, a Christian minister taking his wife and children away. He continues to describe what he sees. The train of beings was accompanied by a number of wagons loaded with little children of many different families, which as they appeared rent the air with their shrieks and cries and vain endeavors to resist the separation which was thus forced upon them and the cords with which they were thus bound But what should I now see in the very foremost wagon but a little child looking towards me and pitifully calling, Father, Father. I wish I could show that in picture form because I'm not sure you, you get that. It's here he's standing on the side of the street and he's watching the parade and there's a wagon. And then he's looking at all the children and hearing their cries and he sees one that he knows. Looking at him and crying, Father, Father. And he has to watch this. This was my eldest child, and I was obliged to look on him for the last time. I I looked for the approach of another gang in which my wife was also loaded with chains. My eye soon caught her precious face. But gracious heavens, he says, that glance of agony, may God spare me from ever enduring again. My wife, under the influence of her feelings, jumped aside. I seized hold of her while my mind felt unutterable things, and my tongue was only able to say, We shall meet in heaven. I went with her for about four miles, hand in hand, but both our hearts were so overpowered with feeling that we could say nothing. And when at last we were obliged to part, the look of mutual love which we exchanged was all the token which we could give each other that we should yet meet again in heaven. And he was never with his wife or children again. That is to say, you know, his heart was ripped out. Everything taken from him. Everything that matters to you and I in terms of earthly possessions stripped from him. By a Christian minister, no less. This is Christian slave owner was unwilling to help him. Christian friends that he knew of means was unwilling to, to help him. And in the end, it was a, a leader in a church, a minister of the gospel who who stole his, his wife and his children. But, by the way, that wasn't a real bright day for the Christian church, was it? Christian churches had some dark eras. This was one of them. But Henry Brown, the amazing thing is, continued to believe, continued to trust in the Lord, despite what he saw, despite the hypocrisy all around him. But the interesting thing is that after this experience of watching everything that he loved taken from him, something changed inside of him. That is, there was in him born a new unquenchable thirst for freedom that overpowered his his fear of men. And for the first time, he wanted freedom more than he wanted his own life under the current system of oppression. He writes, I now began to get weary of my bonds and earnestly panted after liberty. Imagine how you would pant after liberty living under those conditions. Again, something he valued 
freedom, breathing fresh air without having to worry about losing wife or children and going where you want without a letter of permission. A blessing that many of us take for granted, but he didn't. Out of this came a desire to escape. And so he sought different plans of how he could get away. And this is what he's most best known for is, is his escape, not the earlier parts. But you can understand why he wanted to escape in light of the earlier parts of just how dark his life was and how it was to have his heart ripped from his, 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 um, his soul. With the help of a, a doctor friend, Dr. Smith, and also a, a sympathetic storekeeper, he devised a plan of escape, to escape up into the north where he, he could breathe free air. And that is, he decided he was going to ship himself. You know, FedEx himself in a box, UPS himself in a box up north. Um, that's why he got the name Henry Box Brown, because of the box. That was the design, the way that he was going to get to the north and, and to freedom. So they constructed a box, a strong box, as it had have to carry a full-size man. The box was three feet by two and a half feet by two feet. That's not very big. And with the help of his two friends, on March 29th, 1849, he folded himself up into the box with nothing but some crackers, a little bladder of water, and a little sharp instrument with which he could poke holes, additional holes for air, just in case he needed them. There were already a few holes that were drilled into the wood so he could breathe, but he took it just in case he needed more and it wasn't enough. So with these three things, the sharp instrument, some water, and some crackers, he folded himself into the box, and his friends nailed it shut. Now, I don't know if you're claustrophobic at all. I get claustrophobia when I stay in a Honda Civic for too long, you know? But to actually fold yourself into a wooden box, and it wasn't a kind of wooden box where you would have cracks that you could see through because he could be seen, but it was closed shut, and then have it nailed over you. And not only that, but you couldn't move. Not just because of the constraints of the box, but if you moved and made noise or a whimper, then you would be heard, found out, and who would know what the consequences would be for trying to escape. It could be anything from, from serious punishment to death. So he's in there and he can't move, can't make a noise, can't make a sound. Well, the intended address for this particular UPS package, and UPS didn't exist back then, was um, Philadelphia. There was pre a prearranged address of some people who were sympathetic to the slave cause that they were going to ship uh, Henry Brown in this box too. And to make sure that he was head side up, I think about it, you're in a box where you can't turn around. It's like a veal, only a thousand times worse. You know, um, They put this thing on the top of the box saying, this side up with an arrow. So his friends took him to the local express office and they dropped him off head side up. They took him out to the loading dock or something like a loading dock and he said immediately he was placed heels up, head down. Now we know UPS, FedEx, they don't do that anymore, right? When you put this side up, they always leave it up. Whatever it was back then, or whatever it is now, it was a lot worse back then. They didn't really care. So he ended up heels up, head down. I don't know for how long. He doesn't say. The wagon comes a wagon, not an SUV, not something with nice shocks. A wagon comes and they put him on the wagon, but this time head side up, praise God. He goes for a distance of time in a wagon, and then they offload him from a wagon onto a steamer. 
This time, they put him heels up, head down again. Only this time, it's for a longer period of time, and he writes about the experience. He says this, I was again placed with my head down, and in this dreadful position, had to remain nearly an hour and a half, which from the sufferings I had thus to endure seemed like an age to me. Now, you've got to imagine at this point, he's head... Have you ever stood on your head for longer than five, ten minutes? I mean, an hour and a half. And he had, at this point, no assurance that he was going to be turned upside. Just minutes turning into ten minutes, turning into an hour, and wondering, how long am I going to be with my head down? He said, I felt my eyes welling as if they would burst from my sockets and the veins on my temples were dreadfully distended with pressure from my blood in my head. I felt a cold sweat coming over me, which seemed to be warning that death was about to terminate my earthly miseries. I mean, he can't make a sound, can't move to try and comfort himself. He's on his head. The only thing that he can do is pray. And this is what he does. He said, I lifted up my prayer to God who alone was able to deliver me. My cry was soon heard. There just happened to be a man in that holding part of the steamer who wanted to sit down. And of all the boxes on the steamer, he chose his box and turned it on its side and sat down. Of all the boxes he chose, he chose that one and sat down on top of it and, and, and began a conversation with someone else. So he's crammed in this little box. Thankful he's now been turned on his side. But the man sitting on top of him having a conversation. After the steamer gets to his place, he's loaded yet on another wagon. Wagon, mind you. Not a low rider. And when it gets to its, its, its destination, he tells us that when they offloaded his particular box, they dropped it. And they didn't drop it feet down, but head down. And he, he writes this, he says, Falling on the end where my head was, I could hear my neck give a crack and as if it had been as if it had been snapped asunder and i i was knocked completely insens in, in, insensible as he was knocked unconscious by the fact that this thing fell to the ground and the first thing that he heard when he woke up in the box was that there was no more room for the box in the next leg of the journey and he would have to remain there until the next day presumably on his head 24 hours again he wouldn't have lasted that long, at least by his own writing, crammed in that little place. And so what did he do? The only thing he can do. Couldn't make noise. He couldn't, couldn't move. Um, he prayed. He prayed. And again, God answered his prayers. And they found room on the next leg of the journey. And he was taken up to Philadelphia where he arrived 27 hours later from when he first got in the box. 27 hours, traveling almost 300 miles. He arrives at the destination in Philadelphia and a bunch of men gather around, men who are, who are sympathetic or to the cause of slavery. That is, they were abolitionists. And they gathered around the box, wondering if he was going to be alive. And they tapped on it, are you in there? And he responded. And they uncorked the box. And the first thing he said was, how do you do? He stood up. And he fainted. You would too. You ever just try to pray on your knees for like 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and you stand up and you feel like your head's going to spin? Imagine 27 hours crammed into a little box and then standing up. He fainted. And once he came to, in his own autobiography, the first thing that he did was he quoted Psalm 40, a psalm of thanksgiving. I waited on the Lord patiently, and he heard my cry. 
He has put a new song in my mouth. Those were the first, those were the first, that was the first song he sung with the new free air that he was now breathing up in the north. As a result of his 34 years of slavery and all he endured, and then his daring escape, or should I say amazing deliverance by the Lord, he had the opportunity to speak to hundreds and indeed thousands. He wrote his narrative of what happened, and it was read by thousands. And it was used as one of the catalysts to bring slavery to, the, to, to an end. Um, and he lived a nice long life. Again, committed to the Lord through all of this. That's a pretty amazing story, don't you think? It's one you should pick up and read. You can download it free on the Internet. It's public domain because he wrote it so long ago. You know, the, the narrative of Henry Box Brown. If you want to read somebody else's take on it, you can read a modern biography written by Jeffrey Ruggles that, uh, that loved this man's life. But amazing, amazing man um, who was stripped from his parents at 15, had his wife and his kids stripped from him after 12 years of marriage, who decided, I want freedom more than oppression, shoved himself into a tiny box, endured 27 hours of being on his head and, and being dropped, only to finally be liberated and to be a part of what changed the face of the United States. So, so what do we take from, from this as believers? What, how would this challenge you? I think there's lots of lessons you can draw from the man's life. But let me just tell you the three that impacted me. Now, the first two of these, I have to admit up front, are indirect. That is, in somewhat, they are somewhat analogical. Um, they are not direct. The last one will be more direct. That is, I have to kind of transpose them into Christian categories, which I, I hope is okay with you. One of, the, one of the things that it challenges me with is this man's unquenchable thirst for freedom. Coming to know very deeply and very painfully what oppression was like. He wanted freedom more than anything. It was more precious than life itself. At d different points, he, he basically said, listen, I prefer death. If I have to die either by trying to escape or die by getting discovered in this box, I'll choose that over staying here with at least the hope of life and freedom. That's how precious freedom was to him. That he was willing to risk everything to get it. And yet the freedom that he sought, which is indeed a blessing and something that we ought to give thanks to the Lord for every day that we live in this free society where we can gather like this, we can read the Word together like this, where you don't have to fear someone raping your wife and getting away with it scot-free. We ought to give thanks for it. But the, the freedom that he sought and that I think each of us would seek if we were in that situation was in the end a temporal freedom. He would experience it for his life, but then he would die. Not only is that kind of political freedom um, temporary to one's own life, but there's no guarantee that it's going to be here tomorrow. The, the blessed freedoms that we enjoy today, they aren't guaranteed for tomorrow. They aren't. Now, I know we're willing to fight for those freedoms. That's part of the heritage of our great country, but there's no guarantee that those freedoms cannot or will not be taken and we'll find ourselves in the same position, which means 
that the, that the freedom that he sought was both temporal and it wasn't guaranteed. It was important, yes, but it wasn't guaranteed. But there is within the Scripture a deeper freedom that is even more precious than simply having free air to breathe or being willing to go, able to go where you want to go. How about freedom from the ultimate taskmaster? Death. I mean, at the end of life, every one of us will cease to live, cease to breathe, and we will be stuck into a box, a little box, without the same kind of ending that Henry Brown had. Unless there's freedom from that. Or how about the freedom from the enslaving desires, the corruption that... that, 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 uh, it pulses through our veins and through our souls, those impulses to do the wrong thing that, that wield tremendous influence. What about freedom from that? Or what about freedom from the final outcome of those sinful impulses, namely judgment? I mean, that, that's, that's freedom with a capital F-R-E-E-D-O-M. Capital. Freedom. And it's precisely the kind of freedom, of course, that Jesus came lived and died for is to free us from the ultimate taskmaster and slaveholder. Namely, freedom from death. Freedom from the slavery of our own corrupt nature and, and freedom from judgment. It's the deepest freedom there is. It's the deepest freedom there is. And not only did Jesus die to procure that freedom so that we may one day come out of the box in the resurrection. But the Scripture tells us that Jesus Himself is our freedom. When Jesus says in John chapter 8, He says, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. When He says you shall know the truth, He's not thinking of philosophical truth. He's speaking of Himself. For later He says, I am the way and I am the truth. In other words, Christ Himself not only procures freedom, He is our freedom. And if we had just... 10 or 20 or 30% of the, the passion that Henry Brown had to put his life on the line to gain temporal freedom, how much more should we consider the freedom we have in the person of Christ and what Christ has done? How much more should it be precious to us? And how much more should we be willing like Him to put our lives on the line and willing to lose our lives that we might gain it? Because it's, that's exactly what He calls a disciple to do. That is His whole Thirst for freedom is in many respects an allegory of the disciple's life. Then in order to live, you must die. In order to live and experience true life, one must be willing to count their life loss. As Henry did when he got into the box and thought, I am willing to risk my life to have something so precious called freedom. If the church was filled with people with that kind of a passion for Christ who is our freedom and who procured our freedom and the preciousness of that freedom and to realize what and all we have in Him and then this, this place would be a different place. That's, that's one thing I take. It's just the challenge of a man's unquenchable thirst for freedom. How much that should be the pulsating desire of the Christian's heart for true freedom found in Christ. Another indirect application that impacts me is, is once again you look at the span of his life, the 34 years of slavery and then the amazing escape and then what happened afterwards, the impact that his life had and the impact that his suffering had. And you see once again something that Scripture affirms over and over again, and that is when God's people are brought into a season of suffering, it's, 
It's never without purpose. That is, there still is design to it. And I know that sounds so um, heartless in many respects to say, um, but that doesn't make it any the less true. I mean, you sense the depth of the emotion when he's watching his wife leave for the last time and can't even talk to her. All he can give her is a glance that says, I'll see you someday. That's all he can, all he can do. So it's deep. And yet you look at the 34 years of, of what he experienced that equipped him to speak firsthand what it was like and then his daring escape and then what he was able to do in the end to be one of the catalysts, one of many catalysts to bring that horrid institution to an end of slavery. That is, in some respects, his suffering worked to the benefit of freeing his brothers. It just picks up on another biblical theme. A theme you find throughout the New Testament. A theme that God brings good to others through the suffering and pain of, of His people. Now I have to kind of do an aside here and say that none of us should desire pain or suffering. That would be stupid. Just idiotic. I mean, he obviously didn't like it. Henry Brown didn't like it. And he sought to escape it. And God delivered him from it. And he experienced freedom from it. But that doesn't mean that what he experienced in the 34 years of his life or even the pain that he experienced in the box didn't have a purpose because it, it helped the cause of slavery, of bringing slavery to an end. It makes me think of what Paul talked about. It's a principle of the Christian life regarding suffering and pain. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 8-12, through 12, listen to this. He, 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 we've sung this before. It's, it's been made into a song. When he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. He goes on to say, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given to over to death for Jesus' sake, for that His life may be revealed in our mortal body. And here's the clincher in verse 12 when he says, So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. The logic of the passage is fairly simple, and that is, as Paul suffers, it gives life to others. The suffering of the one brings life to others. It, it, it benefits others. And that is exactly what he experienced. He was pressed. He was perplexed. He was persecuted. He was struck down. Those are all lamentable sufferings. And at the same time, he recognized that in those sufferings and in those being persecuted and struck down, he recognized it was, it was giving life to other people. Paul didn't, he didn't originate this kind of principle about suffering or this perspective on suffering. It came from none other than Jesus himself. It's the principle of the cross. And when Jesus said, if you want to call, follow me, you can take up your cross and follow me, because that's exactly what he did, a cross of suffering. That it's precisely through the cross of Jesus, when he came and he suffered, that gives life to you and I. That's the principle. As, as he suffered and died, so were we made alive. And in Paul's own terminology, Jesus actually became a slave that we might live. So that out of suffering comes life. Out of pain comes life for others. And that is not the perspective that our modern culture has on pain and suffering. I mean, what if, what if, just imagine with me for a second. What if you knew that whatever pain and suffering, whatever that looked like, what if you knew that it was going to benefit somebody else? Would it be worth it to suffer it? 
What if you knew what you were suffering was going to bring somebody else to saving faith in Christ? What if you knew that people were watching you as you went through a very serious time, bout with cancer, and they watched and your faith was sustained through it all, and they looked at your faith and said, that's real, that's what I want, and they came to saving faith in Christ. Would it be worth it to battle cancer at that point? Would it be worth it to know that if I had a stroke leaving me partially paralyzed, that if that would result in my son's coming to faith and experience eternal life, would it be worth it for me to have a stroke? And I think I would have to answer, absolutely. His eternal salvation is worth more to me than my temporal comfort. That's the perspective. Would it be worth it? That's a perspective on on pain and suffering that the Christian ought to have. That was Paul's perspective. I'm being crushed or struck down, but it's working life in you. We're all too eager to be self-absorbed in pain, to play the role of the victim in pain, or to get angry at God in pain and not realizing, wow, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen out of this, but I trust that if you're allowing me to suffer, that someone is going to benefit, and that is worth it. That is a life-altering perspective to have on pain in life. It's something that you see in the span of Henry Brown's life, that his suffering in the end did bring relief ultimately to his brothers, freedom to them. And then there's the last. This is more direct. I am just befuddled. I am surprised, amazed at this man's unwavering faith despite the sea of hypocrisy around him. Sea of hypocrisy. Christian slave owner unwilling to do anything about keeping his family together. His Christian friends who had the means to keep his family together turning a deaf ear. And in the end, having his children and his wife ripped from him by none other than a Christian minister. And yet he still believed. He still believed. And that's because he was able to do what many people today can't do, and he was able to, that is that he was able to differentiate between who Jesus is and the conduct of some of his followers. He was able to understand the difference. That who Jesus is is not always adequately reflected reflected in who, how Christians conduct their lives. He was able to differentiate, which people ought to be able to do. He writes about this differentiation in his autobiography, and it's rather scathing towards the pretended Christianity of the South. He writes this, and apparently someone wanted him to apologize for some of the negative things that he said about Christian ministers and Christianity in the South, which he was unwilling to do. He writes, I have no apology, whatever, to make for what I have said in regard to the pretended Christianity under which I was trained as a slave. I have felt it my duty to speak of it harshly because I have felt its blasting influence and seen it used as a cloak under which to conceal the most foul and wicked deeds. In other words, the cloak of Christianity used to cover over wickedness and false and evil motivation. He goes on to say, I pray that God may give them the light to see the error of their ways and if they know that they are doing wrongly, that He may give them grace to renovate their hearts. He prays for the people who were living out this pretended Christianity. But in the end, he didn't give up his faith. There's a lot of people who are willing to walk away from the church and more importantly, walk away from Christ for far less than that. Not only in the suffering, but the fact that the suffering was 
propagated by Christians. How many times have you heard from people around you in your sphere of relationships that I just can't, can't accept Christianity because of the hypocrisy? Well, yeah, that happens. It's happened for 2,000 years. You have to be able to differentiate between who Jesus is, one who is perfect and just and faithful and loving and compassionate, a power, powerful, a king who became a slave to save his people, and the way that Christians have conducted themselves, oftentimes dragging his name through the mire of manipulation and through the dirt of domination, which has given him a bad name. You have to be able to distinguish it. A lot of people who have felt the sting or people who have felt the pain of the jagged edge of extreme fundamentalism and they've walked away thinking that's what Jesus is like and I don't want to have any part in him. You've got to be able to differentiate. Some have experienced those condescending looks and condescending words by fellow church members. Others have experienced the um, hostility of an overly domineering church leadership. Others have went through terrible church splits and watched people argue in ways that the world itself doesn't argue and have thrown out the whole thing. And I'll tell you, Henry Box Brown, after all that he experienced and went through and the sea of hypocrisy, he still believed. He still believed. He understood you hold on to Jesus even when everybody else doesn't. That's faith. That's a faith that's produced by the grace of God. He wasn't superhuman, by the way. There were times in his autobiography where he said, I almost gave up. But it's, it's, it's uncanny the way that God provides at those moments when your faith is stretched so thin to bring a brother into to your life. That's what he did. God brought a brother and he refreshed his spirit and he continued to believe. Just an example to me of, of a man who continued to believe in Christ, despite the fact that everything around him spoke in the opposite direction. And I hope that's the case with you. I hope your faith is resolved to follow Christ and trust in Christ regardless of what his followers do around you. He is the one you hold on to. As we sang a few moments ago, he is our tower and refuge of strength. God's people are not our tower and refuge of strength. Christ is, and we have to keep that straight. May God give us the faith of Henry Brown, the faith that holds on to Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord God, I pray that be the case. Um, I pray that even if there are those here who have been felt the sting, the pain of the dark side of, of Christian conduct, that they would be able to recognize that in Christ um, there are unsearchable riches of, of kindness and wisdom and truth and compassion forgiveness, power, authority, and that they would trust you. Thank you, Lord, for being so good to us. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of getting to know yet another follower who uh, considered you more important than other things. In Jesus' name.